If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. As history shows, ruling an empire is no mean feat. But in the second century AD, the Romans seemed to be able to do it with relative ease. This was the golden age of ancient Rome the Pax Romana, where peace and prosperity were said to have prevailed across the Mediterranean world. So how exactly did the Romans do it? That's one of the questions explored by the popular historian, author and podcaster Tom Holland in his new book Pax, which takes readers from the fall of Nero to the reign of Hadrian. Rob Attar caught up with Tom recently to find out more. So in the subtitle of your book, you describe this period as Rome's golden age. What do you think made it so? Well, the title of the book is Pax. That in Latin is is peace. And for the Romans, peace wasn't a kind of passive state. It was something aggressive. It was something that had to basically be imposed at the point of a sword. So the Roman peace in the, the first and second centuries AD is the fruit of conquest. It's the fruit of the territorial acquisitions that the legions over many centuries have made. And the scale of Roman territorial possessions, I think, is still stupefying today. In a sense, we're kind of anaesthetized to it. We have, we, you know, we, we have a sense of the Roman Empire that is so much a part of our mental furniture that the sheer scale of its holdings, I think sometimes we, we, we kind of lose a sense of how extraordinary that was. But if you think that um, the writ of the Caesars ran from, you know, Scotland down to the Sahara, from the Atlantic all the way to Arabia, and that it included the entirety of the Mediterranean, the Romans called the Mediterranean Mare Nostrum, our sea. And so it was. If you think today, the idea of a unitary power having control over the entire Mediterranean would be an impossibility. The Romans are the only people who ever did that. And basically, in the, in the, the, the heyday of the Roman Empire, because peace prevailed and because these territories had already been won, 
it meant that the Romans were able to enjoy this incredible territorial preponderance, essentially without the expense that came from relentlessly fighting for it. You know, there were up, there were outbreaks of violence in this period, whether within the empire or along the frontiers. But by and large, the vast mass of territory that had been conquered over the many centuries preceding it were at peace, and that peace in turn fostered prosperity. And how was Rome able to maintain peace across such a vast empire? With extreme ruthlessness. I mean, it was military power that enabled them to do it. So the legions, by and large, were parked along the frontiers. And, you know, as I said, there, there were certainly upsurges of violence, particularly along the Danube in this period. And the major process of territorial acquisition in this time under Trajan was a response to that. So um, there were a people called the Dacians who lived beyond the Danube, who prior to Trajan's reign had periodically been kind of crashing across the frontier, spilling out across the Balkans. And Trajan's response to this was to annex Dacia and incorporate it into the empire. And one of the reasons for doing that was that it was fabulously rich, full of of uh, gold and, and, and silver mines. So, so Dacia is a kind of perfect example of this, that it requires extreme martial violence. I mean, incredible. Um, savagery uh, and a determination to annihilate essentially an entire ruling order in Dacia. And then having done that, the operation pays for itself because Trajan reaps so much wealth from the conquests. And that in microcosm is the process by which Roman imperialism works. The empire is, is made to pay for its own peace. Taxes are raised to pay for legions. The legions then secure the peace and that enables more taxes to be raised. So you talked about the great wealth that came with some of these conquests. Was that shared among the people of the empire or did it was it limited to the elites? I mean, there's no question that, that Roman society is incredibly unequal. The wealth that is owned by the absolute elite, the people who qualify to serve as senators, is stupefyingly beyond the dreams of the average Roman. But having said that, there is a level of prosperity in this period that some economists have said approaches the prosperity, say, of the Dutch Republic or England in the 17th century. In other words, the period before the kind of industrial takeoff. Rome famously does not industrialize, but it does operate a single market that enables the vast mass of the people to enjoy a level of prosperity that I think had not, had not been seen before. And when Rome collapses, would not be seen again for many centuries. Now, you mentioned earlier the Emperor Trajan, and he presides over the Roman Empire at its height. Do you think there's a case to be made that he was Rome's greatest emperor? Well, he was called by the Romans the Optimus Princeps, so the best of emperors, and, and that is how he is commemorated, uh, not just by the Romans, but intriguingly right the way into the Christian period. So Christians, when they look back at Trajan, couldn't bear the thought that this great emperor, um, because he hadn't been converted to Christianity, might have ended up in hell. And so they, um, they, they came up with all kinds of um, stories to uh, suggest that perhaps he'd got a pass uniquely and had made it into heaven. My personal take is actually that Trajan is vastly overrated. He wins this great victory in, in Dacia, but he is essentially encouraged by that to aim at um, conquests that overstretch Roman resources. Um, and he does what has been disastrous to so many subsequent Western leaders. He invades Iraq. So the only real rival, geopolitical rival, that the Romans take seriously on their own borders is the Parthian Empire, which is a, an Iranian empire, but rules Mesopotamia, as the Greeks called what we now call Iraq. 
And Trajan decides that he's going to knock this out. He's going to conquer Mesopotamia. And he does that, and he reaches the shores of the Persian Gulf, where he sees a ship sailing away, and he asks, where is that ship sailing? And he's told, oh, it's off to India. And he kind of, um, he expresses an Alexander the Great type lament that he... <laughs> You know, that he, he can't follow in Alexander's footsteps and uh, conquer India himself. But the truth is that even conquering Mesopotamia has overstretched his resources. And he essentially dies amid the implosion of those conquests. Um, and it's left to Hadrian, his successor, basically to clear up the mess. There's a point when Trajan is dying, not only are his recent conquests in Mesopotamia are imploding. But there's a, a massive uh, Judean revolt that is kind of general across much of the Mediterranean. There seems to have been massive turbulence in Britain, in Mauritania, across the empire. And um, I think when Trajan dies, there's a very real chance that the whole fabric of the empire is on the point of implosion. I think an emperor has to be judged by his legacy. And I think actually Trajan's legacy is not nearly what it seems to be. The reason that a veil is cast over that by subsequent historians is that Hadrian does his job very well. Hadrian very, very discreetly clears up the mess. And because Hadrian is Trajan's heir, Hadrian has no, no stake in blaming Trajan. So Hadrian obviously is someone that here in Britain we know pretty well from the construction of the famous wall. What's your take on that wall and what it meant for the Roman Empire at the time? It is a part of a more general programme, which is to stabilize the frontiers. I mean, that's the practical effect. So you have not only that the wall is the, in, in um, northern, what's now England, is the most famous and enduring manifestation of that program. But Hadrian also ordered the, the construction of a massive palisade beyond the lines of the Rhine. Walls are built kind of guarding against tribal incursions from the Sahara in Africa. So it is a kind of general program. But I think there is also an ideological dimension to it. The, this is not in any way an admission of defeat. It's not um, an expression of nervousness of what the barbarians beyond the limits of Roman rule might be capable of doing. Absolutely the opposite. It's a very aggressive, imperious statement of contempt for all those who are seen as not being worthy of Roman rule. I mean, that essentially is what Hadrian is doing. He is casting the world that he rules as a, a great garden, rich, fertile, prosperous, and that everything beyond it is nothing but swamps and weeds. And so therefore to kind of construct a wall around this garden is to say to the kind of the beggars, the, the, the squalid refuse who lie beyond this beautiful pleasure garden, you are not worthy of admission. It also doesn't imply that Hadrian is giving up claims on lands that lie beyond it. I mean, the Romans absolutely reserve the right, for instance, to go beyond Hadrian's wall, to go beyond the limits of the Rhine or the Danube. If they want to, they can. The world is theirs to do with as they please. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. 
Taking the story back a little bit, your book begins around the time of the death of Nero and the end of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Do you see this as a really important junction in Roman history? Yes. So Pax is really a sequel to um, two previous books I did on Roman history. So the first Rubicon was about the collapse of the Roman Republic and the emergence of an autocracy in the form of Augustus, the first Roman emperor. And the second dynasty described the rule of, of Rome by Augustus and by his family. Nero is the last of Augustus's family with his death, with his, his overthrow. There is no one who contains in his veins the divine blood of Augustus left to rule Rome. And so therefore the question is, well, who, who's going to take his place? Should Rome return to a Republican system of government? I mean, that's such a kind of fringe opinion as, to, as essentially to be impossible. But then the question is, well, if, if we don't have an emperor with the blood of Augustus in his veins, who are we going to get? And the attempt to answer that question plunges Rome back into civil war. And the whole point of the imperial system, the autocratic system established by Augustus, was that it had held the Roman Empire in relative condition of peace. Uh, certainly it had, it had kept the kind of the Roman heartlands in peace. And so the experiences um, of basically a single year, AD 69, commemorated by the Romans as the year of the four emperors, this is a shocking return to the cycles of violence, it seemed, that had destroyed the Roman Republic when you had all kinds of rival warlords. So Caesar and Pompey, um, the future Augustus and Mark Antony. And you have these four, these four men who succeed one another in a kind of very brisk procession. And there are people who are thinking, is this the end of Roman rule? As warlords fight over control of the Roman heartlands, so along the frontiers you are getting the sense that perhaps that the entire frontier system is imploding. So you have the Germans crossing the Rhine, you have Roman auxiliaries seemingly turning against Rome. Meanwhile, in Judea, you have a, a massive revolt that had broken out in the latter days of, of Nero's reign that is still, the flames are still blazing. So there are absolutely people who are looking around at the world and thinking, well, this could be the end of everything. And there's a particularly shocking moment when the violence reaches Rome to the degree that the most, the holiest building in the Roman world, the Temple of Jupiter on the hill uh, of the Capitol above the Forum, that goes into flames. And this seems to many like a kind of symbol of the abandonment of the gods. The, the gods have given up on Rome. But in fact, this violence turns out to be pretty much on the surface. It turns out not to be something systemic. It turns out not to be expressive of something that is inherently um, chaotic in the fabric of the Roman state. And once the year of the four emperors has passed, once the triumphant emperor Vespasian is able to establish his rule and his dynasty, Rome pretty much remains at peace for well, for a century and more, a century and a half. So, so in that sense, the year of the four emperors was something of an aberration? It's expressive, I think, of something that is a problem for Roman statecraft right the way up to the very end of the empire, which is that although the Roman Empire has become a monarchy, it hasn't become a kingship. Rome was originally ruled by kings and the kings got thrown out. Rome became a republic. And the memory of that does never entirely goes. The word king remains a dirty one for the Romans. And so therefore, the question of how an emperor is to be succeeded is always a live one. 
the dynastic quality of the family of Augustus had, had been a kind of solution to that. The Flavians then established their own dynasty. So Vespasian has two sons, Titus and Domitian, both of whom rule in succession. Domitian then gets assassinated and you have what posterity remembers as, as the, the rule of the five good emperors. So that's Nerva, who is brought to power in the wake of Domitian's assassination, and then Trajan, and then Hadrian, and then Marcus Antoninus, and then uh, Marcus Aurelius. But essentially what happens there is that none of these men are the son of, the pre of their predecessor, at least kind of blood son. They become adopted and there's a sense in which, therefore, this process of adoption serves the Romans as a kind of meritocratic form of autocracy. The ruling emperor looks around and decides who is going to be the best, the best heir, and it works. So that stability of succession is absolutely crucial to maintaining the peace. And people, you know, absolutely, all the emperors, all the ruling class, they have the memory of the four emperors as a terrible warning. And I think that that's kind of very salutary. And in the long run, of course, the collapse of that peace follows on from the fact that the last of the good, the so-called good emperors, Marcus Aurelius, is succeeded by his own son, Commodus, familiar with anyone who's watched Gladiator. So actually, and I know this goes beyond the scope of your book, would you say that the main reason for the end of Pax Romana is that succession of Commodus? No, I think it has much more deep-seated structural reasons. But I think that securing stable rule at the center of the empire is very important. And the era of the four emperors is significant because it does show the ruling classes what happens if that is put into jeopardy. Now, you mentioned a couple of times the Judean revolt already in previous answers. Now, this is some, a moment that still remains very important in Jewish history, but how big a deal was this for the Roman Empire at the time? Listeners have probably noticed that I've talked about the Judean revolt and or the Judeans rather than the Jews. And the reason for that is that I think that in English, the word Jew carries connotations that are unhelpful for understanding what was actually going on in the first century AD. Because to call the revolt of that culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem, to call that a Jewish revolt kind of implicitly casts it as something religious. We think of it as this is a revolt of, of Jews against pagan overlords. But I think that that's wrong. The Judeans, as I prefer to call them, are a provincial people. They are the inhabitants of the land of Judea. They are also, you know, they're found across the Roman Empire, as Greeks are, as Egyptians are, as Gauls are. Uh, so there are Judeans in Alexandria, there are Judeans in Rome, whatever. The Judeans rebel for reasons that I think are, are really nothing to do with what today we would call religion. Essentially, it's because they're overtaxed. Rome has been destroyed in a fire under Nero. Nero wants to rebuild Rome on a, on a spectacular scale. He therefore sends out blood-sucking tax raisers to screw as much money out of the various provincials as he can. And for various kind of happenstance reasons, the Judeans do rebel against this. They're successful in their early process of rebellion, and that kind of sucks them into thinking that they could perhaps secure their independence from Rome. I mean, in the long run, this is an impossible dream. They can't. The odds against them are, are, are so overwhelming that their rebellion is absolutely doomed to be crushed. But because the, the, the general who is given command against the Judeans is Vespasian, who then goes on to become the emperor, 
And it's his son, Titus, who is left behind in, in Judea to capture Jerusalem. And he, he succeeds in capturing Jerusalem and destroying the temple, looting it of its treasures, bringing them back to Rome. This becomes the kind of foundational military achievement of the new upstart Flavian regime. And the Flavians vastly, vastly inflate the significance of the rebellion. Uh, and and they're able to do this, of course, because they are now the rulers of Rome. Now, a Roman general who suppresses a provincial revolt is not entitled to celebrate a triumph, the great military procession whereby victorious soldiers and loot and prisoners are paraded through the streets of Rome to be cheered by the, the watching crowds. But Vespasian and Titus do celebrate a triumph over the Judeans. And they do this by pretending that actually Judea wasn't a rebellious province. It's a territory that has been freshly conquered. And Titus goes, on, goes so far as to proclaim on inscriptions that are raised and, and triumphal arches in, in Rome itself that Ju Jerusalem had never been captured before which would certainly have come as news to Pompey the Great, for instance, who was the first Roman to have captured Jerusalem, let alone, um, you know, the Babylonians many years before that. Of course, Jerusalem had been captured before. But it's a necessary myth. And because of that, the victory over the Judeans becomes vastly, vastly inflated. On top of that, the memory of it obviously has an incredible significance for for the people who become the Jews, because there's a, there's a further rebellion under Hadrian. And this essentially results in the destruction of the Judean identity of Judea to the degree that it becomes renamed Palestina, so Palestine. And the memory of this becomes part of the fabric of the form that Judean worship takes in the wake of the destruction of Judea as a territorial entity. And in a sense, I mean, to simplify massively, Judeans start to become Jews. So just as the, the, the Judean revolt is foundational for the Flavians, so it becomes foundational for what becomes rabbinical Judaism. And it's for that reason that the memory of the Judean revolt plays an absolutely outsized role. But supposing we had had a British equivalent of Josephus, the Judean, who becomes a Roman citizen and writes the great history of, of the Judean revolt. Suppose we'd had one in Mauritania, suppose we'd had one in, uh, in northern Gaul. We might have a very different, you know, very similar sense of, of those revolts, but because we don't, they are forgotten. But the truth is, is that the Judeans, although they were certainly seen as a strange, weird, aberrant people by the Romans, lots of other peoples were similarly seen as strange and weird and aberrant. The Romans saw everyone who weren't like themselves as being aberrant. And so to that extent, the Judeans were not that exceptional. Because we know what happens, because of the role that Judea in the first century AD plays in as the kind of foundational territory for rabbinical Judaism and for Christianity, we might be tempted to see it as being something unique. I, I don't think it was. I, th I think the Judeans were, were strange and peculiar, but every people in the Roman Empire was strange and peculiar. And what I want to do in the book is to, is to try and see the Roman world not through the eyes of posterity, not through a, a, a Jewish or a Christian lens, but as the Romans themselves would have understood it. And to the Romans in the first century AD, to repeat, the Judeans were nothing special. It's, it's the fact that the Flavians defeat the Judeans that kind of elevates this war into something vastly greater than it was. Now, you've also mentioned there 
the Christians, and this is, of course, a pivotal time for early Christianity as well, what was the status of the Christians within the Roman Empire in the period you're writing about? So my previous book, Dominion, took as its kind of guiding thesis the idea that Christianity is is easily the profoundest kind of uh, consequence of Roman antiquity, that this is the great revolutionary movement that utterly transforms the fabric of classical civilization. And so that book was very much written from the perspective of looking at things through Christian lenses. With Pax, I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to look at the world, as I've said, through Roman eyes and not kind of foreground what is going to happen. So in Pax, the Christians are a very, very, I mean, they're an almost invisible presence. And that's because, you know, I'm looking at it through the eyes of the Roman elites, essentially. And the Christians in this, at this point in time, are like mammals in a Mesozoic world. My focus is on the dinosaurs, not on the tiny shrew-like mammals that are scurrying beneath the, you know, the feet of the Tyrannosaurs or the Triceratops. So they are, they're kind of being noticed. They'd been noticed in, um, in the reign of Nero. Nero blamed them for the fire. And they're noticed by Pliny the Younger, who is sent by Trajan to govern uh, what is now the northwest corner of Turkey. And um, Pliny writes to, to Trajan saying, well, I'm faced with all these strange people. What should I do about them? But they're not really intruding on the Romans. The Romans aren't really very interested in them. Again, because they are kind of seen as being nothing special. The East is seen as this great womb of mad cults and mad beliefs. And on that level, they're nothing special. So another important event, certainly from our point of view in this period, is the destruction of Pompeii and the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. So clearly that has huge relevance to us in terms of the historical sources. How big a shock was it to the Roman Empire, though, when it happened? I think it was a pretty massive shock because... Pompeii and Herculaneum are part of what effectively is the playground of the Roman rich. It's California, it's Monte Carlo, it's Silicon Valley. It's unbelievably central part of Roman Italy. I mean, really, really important. And so to have two cities utterly destroyed, I mean, you know, wiped off the face of the earth, and the amount of devastation that is visited on very wealthy and famous city like Naples or Puteoli. Puteoli is the great kind of port of the Roman Empire, the great grain emporium. I mean, this is terrifying. And it's all the more terrifying for the fact that it is coming in the wake of the year of the four emperors, which is kind of barely a decade earlier. And also in Rome, you are having further signs of of what seemed to be the wrath of the gods. So the great temple of Jupiter, which um, had been rebuilt by Vespasian, that catches fire and burns down again. And you have plague. So this seems to be, to nervous Romans, palpable signs of divine disapproval. And I think it explains the peculiar cast of the reign of Domitian. Who, so, so Domitian's brother Titus is emperor when Pompeii is destroyed, when the uh, Temple of Jupiter is burnt on the Capitol, and when plague ravages Rome. Domitian, succeeding his brother, who dies quite young, is convinced that it is his duty to reconcile the Roman people 
to the gods. And that, I think, explains the peculiarly oppressive cast of his policy, because he comes to be seen as a, a very kind of brutal tyrant by the senatorial elites. But Domitian, of course, doesn't see himself as a tyrant. He sees himself as instituting policies that are designed to appease the gods, to restore the Roman world to the equilibrium that it had previously enjoyed. And in the long run, I mean, who's to say that he he wasn't right because it's under Domitian, essentially, that the Roman Empire does get put back on a, an even keel. Now, your book ends with the end of the reign of Hadrian. Do you see this as an end point or is this more Rome at its absolute height? I end with the death of Hadrian, partly because I think very few emperors are properly revolutionary. That's not really the, the role of an emperor. It's, it's not, you know, they're not the equivalent of a prime minister or a president. They're not there to introduce radical new policies or anything like that. They are essentially there to, to, to keep a hand on the tiller of the ship of state. But I think that Hadrian is an emperor who at the very least changes the mood music of the Roman world. And he does that because he recognises that although Rome is the mistress of the world, Rome herself is being changed by the world. That Rome is ceasing to be Roman in the sense that it had been, say, back in the age of Caesar or even back in the time of Nero, but is properly becoming a global city. Its, its, its inhabitants are drawn from across the Roman world. And this is true not just of the slums, not just of the kind of teeming tenement blocks, but of the Senate itself, that you are starting to get people whose native language, for instance, is Greek appearing in the Senate. And there are many Romans who are contemptuous of this, who, who, who are worried about this, who feel that Roman distinctiveness is being lost. But Hadrian isn't one of them. Hadrian is a great lover of Greek. And so he is the first Roman, effectively, the first ruler of the Near East since the age of, of Alexander to wear a beard. And he wears a beard partly because that is uh, what legionaries wear. So he, Hadrian is showing himself to be a man of the people. But it's also what Greek philosophers wear. So he is publicly demonstrating to the Greeks when he tours the eastern half of the Mediterranean that he has sympathy for their intellectual uh, traditions. And rather like the Americans in, in the wake of the Second World War, served as godfathers for what would become the European Union. So Hadrian serves as godfather of a kind of Greek equivalent. He calls it the Panhellenion. It's centered in Athens. He, he serves as the great patron of Athens. He revives it. He, he, he builds its splendid monuments. He revises its infrastructure. And he casts Athens as the kind of headquarters of this Panhellenic commonwealth, confederation of cities. And this idea that, that the Roman Empire can be Greek as well as Roman is incredibly potent. It, it gives us this idea of a kind of Greco-Roman civilization, this fusion of the Greek with the Roman, which will be incredibly fruitful in the centuries that follows. And although that is something I think that was inevitable, it's not Hadrian who brings it about, he at least is the emperor who, he shows that a Roman ruler can go with the grain of this transformation. And that's why I think he's such a significant figure. And essentially, the, 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 the policies that he institutes, the enthusiasm for Greek culture that he manifests, 
that's something that his successors over the course of the second century will adopt. And with such success that essentially under the Antonines, there isn't really very much to report. There are no great actions. There are no great rebellions. There's nothing much happens. And as Gibbon famously commented, you know, at the beginning of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, most of history is nothing but the record of disasters and calamities and follies. And the second century AD is notably lacking in those. So that's why I ended with the death of Hadrian. And from that, would it be fair to say that the Roman Empire at the end of your book is quite a different place to what you start the book with? Well, yes and no. Uh, to the extent that it is becoming Hellenized, to the extent that with the, the exception of, of, of the year AD 69, Romans at the, by the death of Hadrian can look back on 200 years, pretty much continuous peace, that they can take that for granted. I think the idea of Pax, of, of an order of, that is peaceful, is, is coming to be bedded down to a degree that, you know, is exceptional by what had gone before and indeed by what will follow it. So it, in that extent, it's a kind of, you know, it's a very rare period. But on another level, what is exceptional about the Roman Empire in the time of Hadrian is very much the fruit of the empire as it existed, say, at the, de the time of the death of Nero. It, it's precisely the lack of a convulsive process of change that is so remarkable about it. That is what makes it so distinctive. Now, this idea of Pax Romana has become very influential ever since, and obviously there was the Pax Britannia in more recent times. Do you think subsequent people have misunderstood Pax Romana or drawn the wrong lessons from it? Well, to, to go back to, to what I said right at the beginning of, of our conversation, peace to the Romans is something that is very muscular, very aggressive. It's not something that is passive. And the Roman peace, to reiterate, is upheld by the Roman monopoly of violence. As the, the, the fate of the Judeans demonstrates, anyone who opposes that monopoly of violence will be met with merciless force. So we can eulogize the Roman peace. I mean, if I had to choose a period of ancient history to live in, I would absolutely choose this period. But I would also have to recognize that the Roman Empire has not been won or upheld by pacifist means. It is a very, very militarist society, and it remains a militarist society throughout the heyday of the Roman peace. Without that militarism, the peace would not hold. Sorry, as an aside, I think I'd just have to ask you, which time in ancient history would you least like to live in? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I think the Bronze Age collapse wouldn't be... <laughs> wouldn't be wouldn't be much fun so the, the the process when the the bronze age civilizations in the eastern mediterranean collapse i mean that seems to be pretty brutal so i think maybe then unless of course i was a member of the sea people in which case it would have been brilliant that was tom holland tom's new book pax war and peace in rome's golden age has been published by abacus you can also read a piece by Tom about the Pax Romana in the August issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Meanwhile, Tom's podcast, The Rest is History, co-presented with Dominic Sandbrook, is available on BBC Sounds and all other major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.